Isn't it a gift and a privilege to, to be back together, to be worshiping Jesus together? Can I get an amen? Amen. It is a gift and it truly is a privilege, I agree, to be able to gather in Jesus' name together as we kick off Holy Week. If we haven't met before, my name is Christopher. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at River West and have the joy and the privilege of getting to open up the scriptures with you this morning. If you'd like a Bible, raise your hand and something amazing is going to happen that hasn't happened that often in the last two and a half years. We're going to pass out Bibles. You're going to want the printed page in front of you. Yes, please clap for the Bible, okay? We can clap for the scriptures and these amazing Folks, we'll, we'll be passing out the word. We'd love to have the printed page in front of you. This morning, as many of you know, in church tradition, this Sunday is called Palm Sunday. It's the first day of Holy Week, the seven days that will follow the most meaningful events in Jesus' life, beginning with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, followed by his arrest and his trial, all leading to his crucifixion on Good Friday and his resurrection from the grave on Easter Sunday. And if you're new to reading through the Bible, what you'll notice immediately if you were to sit down with the New Testament is all four of the gospel writers devote a significant portion of their account to the events that took place in the last week of Jesus' life, his final moments. For instance, in John's gospel, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we'll look at again together today, it takes place in chapter 12 out of only 21 chapters. So think about this. That means that almost half of John's account is devoted to Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. In Matthew, the triumphal entry takes place in chapter 21 out of 28 chapters. In Mark, it's chapter 11 out of only 16 chapters. And in Luke's gospel, in the passage that we're going to examine today, Jesus' triumphal entry as he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey takes place in chapter 19 out of 24 chapters. Now taken together... Let's be honest, this is an unusual way to compile a biography of someone's life, to hone in on a single week of someone's life. Imagine reading a biography of someone famous that you admire, Steve Jobs, or more sanctified, much more holy, Mother Teresa, if you're trying to impress your friends. And you open the book only to discover that the majority of the book, over 50% of the book, chronicles the last week of this person's life. It would be strange, wouldn't it? Which begs the question, why do all four of the gospel writers insist on this? Here's why. Because the final week of Jesus' life, Holy Week as we call it in the church, it brings two things that are essential into focus for us. Jesus' identity, who he is, and Jesus' mission, why 
he's come. Last Sunday, we took a look at Jesus' identity, who he is, and we saw, as Pastor Eric showed us through the scriptures, that this king that has come is the gentle king of Jerusalem and the whole world. But this week, we're going to take a look at Jesus' mission, and we're going to learn and discover why this gentle king has come. So with that, if you would turn to Luke chapter 19, as we continue to look at this gentle king, we will see the very heart of his mission clearly as we once again take a look at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We're going to jump in in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage of Bethany, at the mount called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's word. And it truly is so holy that that part of what we should do is almost just bow before this vision of Jesus in this text. When you come to any passage like this, that records Jesus' final moments. Every moment is holy. Every moment 
is placed there to show us a vision of Christ that we must see. So it's best to slow down and to immerse ourselves in all of the elements and even the little details in these gospel stories. As you do, you'll begin to start noticing little gems that you never saw before in these stories that you may have read or, or study or heard preached hundreds of times. In fact, with the Holy Spirit's help, that's what I hope will happen here today as we consider Jesus' triumphal entry that will leave here with hearts singing like the crowds in this story. Amen? Amen. So if you're taking notes this morning, Luke's account that we just read is going to show us that Jesus, this gentle king that the prophet Zechariah foretold, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, has come for three reasons. This is the mission, why he has come. He's come to reign. He's come to rescue. And this gentle king, he has come to be rejected. First and foremost, Luke wants us to see that Jesus, this gentle king, has come to reign. Now, for those of us that were here and present as we walked through our study in Luke's gospel, you might recall and remember that one of the unique features in Luke's gospel account is that it was written for a multi-ethnic audience, for Jews and for Gentile converts. So what's fascinating in this passage is that there are these different elements that Jewish readers would pick up on and Gentile readers would have immediately saw in this story. There were things that would have leapt off the pages if they were reading this account. Case in point, if you grew up in a Greco-Roman culture, the first thing you probably would have noticed in this story is that people are spreading their cloaks out on the road for Jesus in the same way that you would honor a great military leader or a king. Did you notice that that's happening in verses 35 and 36? Let's read this again. And the disciples, they brought this colt to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Why are people doing this? You see, in Jesus' day, it was a custom in the Roman Empire that when a conquering general who fought and won a great battle or a king would be coronated and take the throne, the Senate would meet and they would grant what would be called a triumph, a parade filled with songs and incense to the gods and other rituals to honor this great military leader or dignitary. So as a conquering general or a king would ride through the streets of Rome on their war horses, war horses parading around their great glory and honor, crowds of people would line the streets and they would lay out their cloaks, much like we'd roll out the red carpet for a celebrity or 
a dignitary or famous people in our world today. So if you were a Gentile who grew up seeing these triumphal processions, or at least hearing about them, the moment you read the part where Jesus' followers are lining the streets with cloaks, you'd immediately think to yourself, well, this rabbi that's riding into Jerusalem, he must be a king. Of course, this is why the crowds in the story are lining the streets and singing loudly in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In Psalm 118, actually, the literal translation in Hebrew is blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But the crowds substitute that general phrase referring to the Messiah as blessed is the one with blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, you have to see this or you'll never understand the true Jesus of Scripture. What's happening in Jerusalem in this day is not simply a preacher or prophet's welcome. This was a reception reserved for only the highest kings, for only the greatest and most revered leaders would receive homage and a reception like this. Last week, as we looked at Matthew's version of this account, it includes this verse where he tells us that Jesus entered Jerusalem and the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth. I appreciated last week as Pastor Eric pointed out that this question around Jesus' identity, who is this? It stirred up the whole city of Jerusalem. And friends, isn't it true that this question, who is Jesus? It still stirs up its fair share of controversy in our world today, doesn't it? Jesus is always stirring things up. Yes, he's gentle. But there's also an element where the very person of Jesus and his presence is always ruffling people's feathers and stirring things up. And while some people throughout history and our world today would certainly prefer a Jesus who's only meek And a gentle spiritual sage who never calls us to leave behind our nets, to confess our sins, to take up our cross, and to love our enemies and the people that irritate us. This is not the Jesus of Scripture. That's simply the Jesus of culture. The Jesus of Scripture is an utterly gentle and humble Savior who emptied himself and took on, as Paul will say in Philippians, the very form of a lowly servant, emptying himself. But bear in mind that this same Jesus that we see riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, right after weeping over the city that he loves, 
he goes straight into the temple and turns over tables in Luke chapter 19, which doesn't necessarily fit maybe the picture of like a gentle Jesus, does it? It's a paradox. I want you to see it. I'm not making this up. Look in your Bible. This is where the printed page is really helpful. Look at what happens right after the section we read together. Jesus walks into the temple. In other gospel <laughs> accounts, he fashions a whip. Okay, so we've made a detour from riding a donkey and coming gently and humbling to grabbing a whip. What's happening? Walks into the temple, and in verse 45, we read, He entered into the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, underline this, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers. What gives Jesus the authority to walk into the temple in Jerusalem and say, this is my house. And you religious leaders have turned this into a corrupt den of robbers. Make no mistake, friends, this gentle king who's utterly meek, and receives the weak to himself, is also the just and righteous king who has come to reign over all. Amen? This story and this paradox of Jesus' gentleness and meekness, but also his authority and strength, it reminds me of this scene in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia that I read to my kids years ago. I love, this is my favorite scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy sees Aslan for the first time. Do you remember that scene? When Lucy sees Aslan, she asks the question and, and she says, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then Mrs. Beaver responds and says, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe? Asked Lucy. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, I hope you don't misinterpret what I'm about to say, but I want to share with you a, a growing worry that I have as a pastor and a follower of Jesus. Our culture has become a culture that is fixated and obsessed with safety. This is being recorded. That is not a statement about masks. That is not a statement that is pro-mask or anti-mask or public health. It's that in our culture, our fixation and obsession with safety, I think may result in a version and an iteration of Jesus where he's almost a bubble-wrapped savior who never says anything that offends our sensibilities. If we bubble wrap Jesus of the New Testament, editing out the parts that make us uncomfortable, 
or we dislike, what we will have left may be a gentle prophet or a nice moral teacher, but a savior who is inconsequential to our very lives. Is he safe? Who said anything about following Jesus and taking up your cross and leaving everything? Losing your very life to find it, does that sound safe? Loving your enemies, does that sound safe? Who said anything about safety? But is he good, River West? Yes, to the very core. He's the king, I tell you. That is what, during Holy Week, all the gospel writers want to impress. He's the king, I tell you. And he's utterly good. Unlike every other king you've seen before. That's what the triumphal entry is showing us. That yes, Jesus has come gentle and lowly, but he's the king of kings. And Lord of Lords, this lion of Judah is also a lamb. And he's come to rule and reign over all things. That's why the crowds are spreading out their cloaks and worshiping him. Look in verse 37. This is one, by the way, of the most explicit accounts of Jesus being praised and worshiped as God in the flesh. So if a Jehovah's Witness ever like knocks on your door and they want to talk about Jesus, underline this verse, this would be a great place having conversations with people that say Jesus was never worshipped as God. Turn to Luke chapter 19, look at verse 37, what's happening. As he was drawing near to Jerusalem, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise who? God, but who are the crowds praising and honoring and spreading their cloaks out for? Jesus, Jesus. And and if you don't believe that Jesus is receiving worship, look at how incensed the Pharisees are in the following verses. In verse 39, they come up to Jesus and they're fuming and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because if he's not God, if this is not the lion of Judah, the king of kings and lord of lords, then the crowd that is praising him is committing blasphemy, a sin that was punishable by death in Judaism. But Jesus doesn't stop them. Instead, he essentially says, if these people don't honor me with their lips lips and lay out their cloaks and receive me as the world's true king, the very stones of this temple will start bursting out into song. They'll start crying out. Because this Jesus is more than a prophet More than a teacher, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Amen? He's come to reign, but he's also come to rescue. That's the next thing that Luke is going to show us is this gentle king who's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey has come to reign as king, but also to rescue. 
Now, in the same way that the cloaks lining the streets would have triggered Roman readers to know that this is a king who's come to reign, every Jew who heard or read this account of Jesus' triumphal entry would have immediately noticed the fact that the crowds were singing Psalm 118 to Jesus, which is considered in the songbook for the Jewish people, a messianic psalm that would be sung during Passover. In Psalm 118, let's take a look at the original text. If you want to turn there to the left to the Psalms, I want you to notice something. I want you to pay attention to what's happening here. Put on your thinking caps for a moment. By the way, a good sermon in River West is not a sermon where your attention is actually fixated at what's happening up here. We're really happy when your noses are down and you're looking in the Bible. Okay? I want you to see something that has escaped me for years that I never saw. And it's right here in this psalm. This is what they're singing to Jesus in all of the gospel accounts. This Psalm 118, this Passover psalm, okay? In verses 25 and 26, these are the words that they would sing. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, you see the phrase, save us, we pray, in verse 25. It's a combination of two Hebrew words. Yasha, which means to save or deliver, and Anna, which means please, I beseech you. And it's the only time that this phrase, Yasha Anna, appears in the Old Testament. And we get our word Hosanna or Hashanah from these two Hebrew words. So this is how we get the word Hosanna. And it only shows up once in the Old Testament in this psalm right here. And it literally means, please save us. It's a desperate cry for God to intervene and rescue. Like if somebody were to push you off a diving board and you can't swim, you would cry out, help, save me, Hosanna. That's what this word means. But as I was geeking out, and I invite you into the geek out moment with me, and studying the etymology of this word, because every single word that we use in language, it has a genealogy. It has a history around that informs the context and how we hear it. You understand that, that as somebody in 2022, the way you hear words is different how, than how your parents heard those words, which is different than how their parents heard those words. You understand that, right? Okay, so the context of this word, it changed over time. The way that the Jewish people use this word, it changed over the years. I want you to notice something again in Psalm 118, this cry for rescue. 
Yasha'ana, Hosanna, is immediately followed with this promise of a deliverer who will come and save. A Messiah. So we read in verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this cry for rescue, save us, O Lord, we beseech you, we pray, is immediately followed by this blessing, this promise of one who would come in the name of the Lord. So year after year, during Passover, singing this song, the Jewish people would, would fix their hope on a Messiah who would come and save. And over time, this word Hosanna changed from simply being a plea to a word of praise, the central word of praise in Second Temple Judaism. So the time of Jesus it was the central praise word that they would sing. It, it changed. It used to mean, save us, we pray, O Lord. This cry for rescue turned into a confident exultation in a rescuer, a Messiah, a king who'd come. In other words, Hosanna used to be what you would say when you fell off the diving board. Help, save me. But it came to be what you would say when you would show up in the temple with the gathered congregation and you would say, Lord, send your deliverer. Send one who can save. It's the bubbling over of a heart that sees hope and the joy of salvation arriving and just can't keep it in. That's why the crowd is singing and shouting Hosanna in the top, at the top of their lungs in all of the gospel accounts. Because Israel's long-awaited rescuing king that Psalm 118 promised would come, he's finally arrived. Here's one place in the New Testament in Matthew's gospel where the crowd erupts in this Hosanna song. In Matthew 21 verse 9, we read, Hosanna to the king of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's a cry for rescue, but it's also a confident, confident exaltation and a word of praise to a rescuer who's come. Sadly, while the crowds line the streets of Jerusalem praising God for sending a rescuer behind closed doors, the religious leaders are seething with anger and plotting how to kill Jesus. The very end of the chapter, look at what is happening in Luke chapter 19. Just read down the, the final two verses. And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. It's such a stark contrast, isn't it? Where some are shouting, Hosanna, and hanging on Jesus every word that he's teaching the chief, chief priests and the scribes and religious leaders are plotting how to arrest him and have him executed. 
But friends, from the very beginning, this bitter rejection was all part of God's sovereignly orchestrated plan. Just like the cult that was born for this moment so that Israel's king could sit on someone's cloak and ride into Jerusalem to fulfill the vision of Zechariah 9. Jesus was born to be rejected. But the people were blind to this. They sang this Hosanna song year after year in the temple, but I want you to see that smack dab in the middle of this psalm of praise, it promised that this rescuer, this one who would come in the name of the Lord to save, would be rejected. Look at Psalm 118, look at verse 22. It says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Folks, this was no accident. Every single moment that precedes this moment in Jesus' triumphal entry was sovereignly orchestrated by a God who knew that he would send his son. But in order to reign, in order to rescue, he would need to be Rejected. There was no other way. There was no other way to set people free than to be rejected himself. This is the final thing that the gospel writers want to impress upon us through Jesus' triumphal entry is this king has come to reign. He's come to rescue. But in in the great mystery of the gospel, he has come to do those things through rejection. And we see this in Jesus' tears. It's why he's weeping over the city while the crowds are singing. Let's read this account one more time in verses 41 to 44. Look at these words. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. For years, I don't think I understood what's really happening within Jesus' heart as he weeps over Jerusalem, which which on the surface, it seems strangely out of place. In this festive moment, as the crowds, for the first time in Jesus' ministry, this worship is spilling over. It's it's electric on the streets. And yet Jesus is, is weeping while the crowds are singing. But here's why. 
Deep down, he knows that within days, these same crowds who are shouting Hosanna will be crying out, crucify him. The same crowd that is welcoming him and laying out their cloaks is is going to hand him over to Pilate to be whipped and nailed to a cross. He knows he has been born for this moment and that he'll be rejected. And in rejecting him, they're rejecting the Prince of Peace and the only one who can mend our broken world, who can bring peace to streets and places in our world that have no peace. Ultimately and historically, Jesus knows that for the crowd singing in Jerusalem that day, that there is coming a time that many would see that in AD 70, Jerusalem would be sieged and attacked and surrounded by Roman war horses and chariots. Underneath the leadership of Emperor Titus, they would lay siege for a bloody five months in Jerusalem. The people would be killed. It was a genocide. And the very temple that Jesus is riding into would be decimated and torn down. And that's why Jesus is weeping. Because by rejecting him, the city is also sealing their fate. But I also believe that Jesus is weeping because he knew that in our day, war would still spill over to places like Ukraine, where Russian troops are marching through the streets of Ukraine in this very moment. He would know that 4.5 million Ukrainians are forced to flee, leave behind everything, and be displaced in our world today. He saw it all. He saw Rwanda. He sees Myanmar. But I think Jesus is weeping because he also saw you and I that day. He saw the moments where we would reject him. He saw you and I turn away and in love, this gentle and just king, I believe he was crying because he knew that he would be rejected by all of his disciples. In Matthew's account of this story, he includes something that is so, so precious. This shows us, I think, that the very gentle heart of Jesus for you and I in Matthew 23, I want you to look at these words. This is a holy picture This moment, if you want to know what Jesus feels towards you and I, consider these words from our Savior. He says this, O Jerusalem, you can insert your name here, O Christopher, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up this morning. I want you just to sit with a moment with this gentle picture of Jesus saying, Oh, how I long, like a mother hen, to gather you under my wings. But are you willing? Are you willing? Is there anything more gentle than a picture of a mother hen caring for its children? This is Jesus' heart for you today. There's something in your life where he wants to reign over it. He he wants you to essentially kind of spread your cloak, take off your cloak and say, Jesus, I'm humbling myself and I need you. I recognize I haven't been living like you are the Lord of this. But there's many here today that I know that need rescue. You need Hosanna. You're stuck. Our Savior is spreading out his wings. And in this moment, we're going to come to the communion table. And the tender invitation of Jesus is, are you willing? Will you receive me? Will you let me set you free? Let us say a word of prayer and then we'll turn our hearts to the Lord and worship together this morning. Father, in this moment, as we consider this picture of your son, Father, we we just want to, to recognize that there's been Many moments, Lord, where, where we've rejected your invitation. We're so slow to come to you and to cry out for help. And so this morning, with your Holy Spirit's help, I pray that there would be those this morning that cry out, Hosanna, Lord, please save me. I cannot save myself. I cannot fix this. We worship you, Lord, because you are worthy. And so better our hearts, Lord, crying out than than being like silent stones. And so this morning, Father, may we worship you with our true hearts because you're worthy of our praise. And all of God's people say, Isn't he good? Amen.